0: Great. Why don't we give Matthew an extra warm welcome this morning as he comes to preach? Thank you, Richard. Psalm 138, verse 3. When I called, you answered me. You greatly emboldened me. What a great psalm. Lord, well, I pray that uh, we would call on you today and we would know you answering us, Lord, in all the things that we're calling on you for all the things that we need, all the things that we're bringing before you, and would you embolden us, O God, that we would ask boldly and see your supply and know your help. Amen. Amen. Okay, we are in the sixth part of our series in the book of Revelation, looking at the seven churches of Revelation, and today we are looking at the church in Sardis, which is a sleepwalking church, a sleepwalking church, Revelation Chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. So the angel of the church in Sardis writes, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found that your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember therefore what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. To the churches. Last week I was having a conversation with somebody who asked me, how is it that uh, we can actually love the church? How do we love the church when there is so much in the church that seems to reek of death? The reality as we look around in the, the Western world is that we see empty church buildings and we see church leadership, clergy often so compromised and we see often what appears to be more division than unity in the church. How can we love the church? Now, Jesus' message to the church in Sardis speaks directly into that. We uh, live in a point in history where we're coming after something that used to be known as Christendom, the Christian West so-called. And there are all kinds of assumptions about, the, about Christendom, about how things were done and about how things were organized. And Sardis is... Uh, something like Christendom, a place where there is a mighty reputation, but actually nothing much inside, a shell hollowed out, ready to collapse. And yeah, even in that picture of of death, there are some who remain faithful and alive, and there is hope. And that's really the theme of this morning's message, that it might seem at this time in our Context: Our point in history is if the church is asleep, actually almost even dead, despite whatever reputation it might have had in the past. But there is still hope. There's still life. And actually where we need to get to is this hope for revival, that God can revive his church and do great things amongst us in our day, in our nation once again. So first of all, let's think about the church and its city, the church and its city. In the 6th century BC, Sardis was one of the most powerful cities in the ancient world. But by the Roman era, and Sardis became part of the Roman Empire in 133 BC, uh, Sardis had really declined to a relic and was just kind of living off its past glories. It was no longer the powerful city it had been. And we see as we work through these messages of Jesus to the churches, the seven churches, how the ways in which he commends them, the things he warns them about, often tie into cultural traits that affect them as particular places. That's a recurring theme as we look at these letters. There are cultural things in each of these cities which affect what the church is like. The churches are shaped by the cities in which they dwell. And Jesus keeps saying to them, actually, you need to be shaped by the gospel more than you are by the city And so there are lessons here for us and warnings for us. The reality is that we will be shaped by our city. We will be shaped by the culture in which we live. And so we need to learn to discern how the culture, how the city shapes us. There are things about where we live which are just in a sense neutral, don't have any gospel impact. Might be things like the food that people eat or the way that people dress. Those are just kind of culturally neutral. They have no impact upon the gospel. There are other things which we might say about the place we live are are positive and we as a church would want to embrace and celebrate and lean into. Some of that is just the fantastic place in which we live in terms of the scenery and the beach and the countryside and some of the stuff that goes on in our town, the creativity which happens in our town and things like that. But there are also things in our culture, in our city, which are negative and we need to discern those and see how they can shape us as a church. We are shaped by our city. We're shaped by our history. We're shaped by where we live now. And as that's true for the church. It's actually true for us as a nation as well, isn't it? The UK as a whole still still seems to be trying to navigate its way in the world in a a post-Empire world. What are we meant to be as a nation? Are we meant to still be trying to be a world power? Or do we just give up on that and become a kind of a mid-table entity? Should we be allying ourselves with the US and Australia and trying to oppose China? Or should we just stay as far out of that as we possibly can? What is our place in the world? We can't escape our history. And we need to see how Actually, Christianity, the role that Christianity has played in our national history. We we live in a society, a culture, which has been entirely shaped by Christianity. It's true in terms of the physical environment where our towns, our villages are still, to a large extent, dominated by church buildings. They stand out as landmarks, as points of reference. The physical space of our society is shaped by Christianity. It's true in terms of our, our customs and our laws. Everybody knows that we have Christmas at Christmas time. Why? Because that comes from our Christian legacy, our Christian heritage, even things like the role of the Queen. Uh, her role is so shaped by a kind of a uh, religious assumptions. And then there's all our other assumptions, the value of the individual, equality, tolerance. All these things are shaped by our Christian history. But now we live in a post-Christian world. We've seen the rise and fall of Christendom. And how then do we navigate that? How do we navigate life? What, how do we define morality? What assumptions should we have? And Sardis, the city and the church, are relevant to us in thinking about all this stuff. Sardis, one of the seven churches. Let's get the map up. Familiar map by now. Uh, kind of there in the in the middle, between some of the other churches we've looked at. And uh, Sardis was built. There was an acropolis, a fortified citadel, on top of a 1,500-foot hill in Sardis, and. Uh, Polybius, who was a Greek historian in the second century BC, called Sardis the strongest spot in the world. So top of this, top of sheer cliffs, uh, amazingly well defended naturally. If you go online and uh, look up sardisexpedition.org, you'll see you can find some amazing drone shots of Sardis and what it looks like now, just incredible pictures of that cliff top setting. Uh, Sardis, as well as having this amazing defensive position, had also been incredibly wealthy. And there's been a great deal of jewelry found in the cemeteries in Sardis, which reflects the wealth that had been in that city. And so it had this great history. It had been one of the most powerful cities in the ancient world. It was kind of impregnable. It was rich. And now at the point at which Jesus is speaking to the church in Sardis, the reality is rather different. It's not independent, it's not powerful, and it's not wealthy. It had been all those things, and now it is none of them. And the church in Sardis seems to reflect the city of Sardis. The church in Sardis had only been going a short time when uh, Jesus spoke to it through uh, the revelation of John. But like the city, the church had started well, had a reputation, but now was more dead than alive. And the Issues in the church at Sardis are different from many of the other churches that we've looked at. Some of the other churches, the problems are false teaching, heresy coming into the church or, or uh, uh, opposition, persecution coming into the church. And it doesn't seem that those things are so much the issue in Sardis. More it's that the church has just got sleepy. It's sleepwalking. What has a reputation for being alive is actually dead. It's like the... Uh, fruitless fig tree, fig tree. Remember the story in Mark 11 that Jesus sees a, a fig tree in leaf and he goes up to see if there's any fruit and there's no fruit on it and he curses the tree and it withers and dies. And the church in Sardis is a bit like that, something which has got a reputation for being alive but there's, there's no fruit they're, they're, they're sleepwalking. It's like Christendom, something with a history, a reputation but now just crumbled. And... We don't want Gateway to be that church. We don't want Gateway to be a sadist type church. We don't want to live just on reputation, but actually be about to crumble. We don't want to be a going-through-the-motions church. We can be here in BCP, but we can't simply reflect BCP needs to be something genuinely full of life amongst us. So let's think about Christ and his church. See how Jesus makes himself known to this church. Jesus says that he is him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, what's that about? The seven stars are the seven churches which Jesus addresses. The churches belong to Jesus. They're Jesus' church. And we always have to remind ourselves of this. This church, Gateway Church, this is Jesus' church his church it belongs to him which means that he has authority over it he can do with this church what he wills what about the seven spirits go back to the beginning of the revelation revelation 1 verse 4 and john starts his letter the, the letter to the church is like this to the seven churches in the province of asia grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come that's the heavenly father and from the seven spirits before his throne seven spirits and from jesus christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. What we see here is a, a Trinitarian greeting. There's one God, but God is three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's a greeting from God in his entirety to these seven churches. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is described in terms of the seven spirits. Or if you look in your footnote, if you've got a Bible with you, it says the sevenfold Spirit. What is happening here is that this is, in Revelation, we see this pictorial language. And uh, the sevenfold Spirit represents the Holy Spirit in his fullness. Seven is the perfect number. And when we read about the seven Spirits or the sevenfold Spirit, it's showing us that this is the Holy Spirit who is complete. And the power of the Holy Spirit is complete and sufficient for these churches. And for this church in Sardis, they need to repent of where they are. They need to be raised from death into life. And the power of the Holy Spirit is sufficient for them to be able to repent. And he is available for them to find that power. The Holy Spirit is the one who raised Christ from the dead. And he can raise this church in Sardis from their spiritual stupor too. And if we are sleepwalking in any way, if Maybe we have a reputation for being alive, but actually there's death. The Holy Spirit has power and is available for us, to us, to bring us back into life. Now Jesus knows the deeds of the church in Sardis, and they might have wished that he didn't, because they can't hide behind an impressive-looking edifice. They can't hide behind... Their reputation. They can't hide behind their history. Christ knows the reality. He knows they have left their deeds unfinished. He knows they have a reputation for being alive but actually are dead. He knows that they're not really any different from their city. They're a kind of a shadow church, as Sardis has become a kind of a shadow city. And Christ calls his church to something better than that. Don't just be a hollow edifice. There's got to be real life here. And so the next thing is that we see Christ's command to his church. The city of Sardis was the strongest spot in the world, this fortress, citadel, on top of a 1,500-foot-high cliff. But twice in its history it had fallen to enemies because of a lack of vigilance, because the people in Sardis were so confident in their natural strength that they became complacent. The first time the city fell was in 549 BC, when Cyrus, king of Persia, captured the citadel. He sent a climber who climbed climbed up a crevice in the cliff and uh, inspired other soldiers to follow. And the Persians took this supposedly untakeable fortress because the people in Sardis were complacent. A couple hundred years later, 216 BC, something similar happened. This time, a Cretan called Ligurus came and he led a similar kind of climb took 15 men with him it was kind of like a special forces operation and he climbed up again up this sheer cliff and over the walls of the city and then opened up the gates from within and the Cretans were able to come in and take the city it happened because the people at Sardis were complacent they didn't in a sense finish what they were called to do their complacency led to defeat And Jesus says that the church in Sardis is similarly complacent. They're not getting done what ought to have been done. Now, we all have experience of that kind of thing. And maybe it's something which you yourself are guilty of. I know at times, certainly I am. And even if you can't think of any examples about yourself not doing this, you will certainly be able to think of other people who do not get the stuff finished which they ought to get finished. We've all experienced that. We're all familiar with the kind of things, the kind of projects where something starts well, but never really gets finished. It's the, 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 the pupil at school who suddenly has a burst of enthusiasm to get on with their homework, starts really well, and then just kind of, ah, never quite gets finished. It's that relationship which starts with a great flurry of enthusiasm and romance and excitement, and then it doesn't quite finish, or it's the builders you have in to do building work in your house. And many of you will have experienced this, and hopefully it won't be the case with us now. building project here, but you know what it's like with builders. They start really well, and they're making great progress, and it gets towards the end of the project, and suddenly they seem to be distracted. Suddenly they're off pricing up other jobs. and. The snagging list never quite gets finished. There's all these things which should be finished and never quite get finished. You're on the phone to your builder saying, I need this finished. They say, oh yeah, come and get it done. And it never gets done. And for the rest of the time in your house, you're looking at those things which haven't been finished. You think, I wish the builder, he started well, but he didn't finish. Lots of us have been there, haven't we? That's how life is in every team. You need people who are going to finish stuff. It's great having people who start things. You need the initiators. You need the guys and, and women who can get projects up and running. But you need some completer finishers who are actually making, going to make sure it gets done. If you have a team of people who just get stuff started, that's great and it's exciting, but then nothing ever gets done. You need the steady people who are actually going to say, let's get this thing finished. And the church in Sardis was a church which hadn't got things finished this is the great i think this is the great challenge of christian discipleship keeping going and finishing the course it's a great challenge of discipleship some of that is just the reality of of how long we all live now if you become a christian when you're young and we all expect to live into our 80s or 90s it's a long time to be faithful And and you see lots of people who actually don't finish. And it's not just that people kind of in their 20s go to university and give up on the faith. No, you see it in guys in their 50s and their 60s who have been faithful, maybe for decades, and then get to their 50s, 60s, and they just don't finish. Reflect what happens here at Sardis, kind of get lazy, get complacent. Sleepwalk, what had a reputation for being alive, actually becomes dead, it's a great challenge of Christian discipleship, keeping going, finishing the course. It's too easy to get sleepy. It's too easy to rely on past reputation. And we mustn't think that this is a danger from which we as a church are immune. We are getting close to our century anniversary. 1925, first group of Christians starting to meet on this place, worshipping God together. Only four years away from our centenary we could rely on our history we could say for a hundred years we do say it often for a hundred years people have been faithfully serving Jesus in this place we could rely on that history and find actually we end up like the church in Sardis a reputation for life but actually inside there's only death complacency becomes self-fulfilling prophecy just like the city of Sardis had this reputation for life thought they were impregnable thought they couldn't be touched twice they let people over the walls and open the doors because of complacency because of sleepiness we mustn't be complacent we mustn't become a sleepwalking church we're not finished until we're finished last weekend was the london marathon if you drop out of the marathon at 26 miles you have not finished because it is 26.2 miles You have to get to the 26.2 to get the medal, to finish. 26 miles is a long way, but it's not the finish. We've got to get to the finish. Now, this applies to each of us personally in our own, own walk with Christ. Finish. Finish what Christ has given you to do, but it's worked out amongst us corporately. This is Jesus' command to us. Gateway Church, finish the tasks that I have given you to do one of those very practically does seem like the building project. We've got to get this one finished. It's time to get it finished. Let's finish it. Lastly, how do we finish? We need to remember what it is that we've received and what we've heard. And that means that we need to be shaped more by the gospel than we are by our city. We uh, often talk about five kind of aspects of what it means to be a disciple, what that means, what it looks like. Remember what we have received and what we have heard. Before we came to Christ, we were idolaters. We were worshippers. Everybody's a worshiper, but we were worshiping the wrong thing. We have now been brought into worship of the living God. We've been changed. Let's not fall back into idolatry. Let's worship him. Let's finish worshiping Jesus and not going back into idolatry. Before we knew Christ, we spiritually were orphans. We're spiritually kind of lost, but we come to Christ and we're adopted as his sons and his daughters, as his children. Let's, let's finish, secure in that place of sonship. Let's not go back to orphanhood. Before we came to Christ, we were just consumers, just consuming, looking to get as much out of life as we could because this life was all we thought we had. But we come to Christ, and we find actually a richer calling in being servants and serving him and serving one another. Let's, let's finish. As servants, let's not go back to being consumers. Before we knew Christ, we were just trying to do life on our own. We suffered from individualitis. We were individuals. Now we've been brought into a family. Let's finish as family members. Let's not go back to individualitis. Before we knew Christ, we were worldly, following the ways of the world, just shaped by the place in which we lived, swallowing all its assumptions and its ways of doing things. We come to Christ, we're transformed, we become witnesses to and for Christ. Let's finish as witnesses and not go back to being worldly. Remember all that we have in Christ. Remember that in Christ we have the treasure, not the trinkets. And so we need to hold fast these things. Jesus says to the church in Sardis, and say the same thing to us hold fast. It feels at the moment, in the way that our world is at this time, it feels like we're, we're sailing in very stormy seas. What do you do if you're sailing in a very stormy sea? Well, in the end, you lash yourself to the mast. And there's a sense in which that's what Jesus is saying to this church in Sardis, and I believe he'd say it to us as well. In, our, in the stormy seas of our moment in history, we need to lash ourselves to the mast, hold fast and finish the things that God has given us to do. And so if there is amongst us complacency or sleepiness or compromise, we need to repent. We need to turn from what is death to what is life. There's a sober warning that Jesus brings to the church in Sardis here, that Jesus does come in judgment against churches that are not faithful churches which have a reputation for being alive but actually are dead just like that fig tree which he cursed and withered and died jesus does come in judgment against churches which are not faithful and what looks impressive can crumble and as we look at the apparent collapse of so much of the western church that is not a sign that jesus is no longer in control Actually, that's a sign that he has come in judgment against so much, which looked impressive and looked alive, but actually was dead, wasn't faithful, grew complacent, sleptwalked, didn't finish. And Jesus comes and he knocks it to the ground, because Jesus will not be mocked by a church which claims to be his but actually is not. It's a serious warning. But we also need to see the message of hope here. Jesus says that most in Sardis are soiled. They're compromising with their culture. They're just shaped by their city rather than by the gospel. But not all are soiled. And as we look at our context, we might look around at the church and think most of the church in some way feels compromised. But not all. This is what Jesus says. You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus says there are the unsoiled few who are dressed in white. I wore the wrong color shirt today. Rich has done better. The unsoiled few dressed in white. What's that about? Some of it's just, again, I think, kind of cultural references. The Romans, on days of triumph, wore white. It was kind of party party color for the Romans was white. But more than that, throughout the book of Revelation, we see that white clothes are used as a sign for the people of God who are justified and redeemed by God, who've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. In Revelation 7, it talks about those who've had their clothes washed in the blood of the Lamb and are dressed in white. It's a sense of of cleansing, of redemption, of justification, of right standing, of worthiness before God. And we are made worthy by Jesus It's not our works, it's not our efforts that make us worthy. Jesus is the one who makes us worthy. He is the one who justifies us. He is the one who redeems us. He's the one who washes us. We're made worthy by him. I'm very much talking to in-house church today, but if you're here today you don't yet know Jesus, the the only way you can be made right with God is by Jesus. You need to come to him and receive his cleansing in your life. Made worthy by him, but then those who are worthy demonstrates that by faithfully following Him. And Jesus says of these ones, dressed in whites, that their names are securely written in the book of life, and that He is going to honor them before the Father. He knows their names. Those who are worthy are known by name by Jesus and will be honored. By him before the Father. It's a great hope for us. It's a great reward. It's a place of honor in God that we have through Christ. So what are we going to do in our post-empire, post-Christian society, in a culture that doesn't know where to find its bearings? The reality that people don't know their left hand from their right anymore. The whole thing seems to be going crazy in our world. Are we going to just Reflect that. Are we just going to start sleepwalking or will we finish the things that the Lord has called us to? If you're sleepy, wake up. If you're apathetic, get up. If you're compromised, straighten up. The Lord will have his bride. The Lord will have a pure church. He is making his people spotless, perfect, without wrinkle or blemish, ready for the great wedding feast of the Lamb. And Jesus is in the resurrection business. Jesus is the one who brings life out of death. As we see that even in these warnings that Jesus speaks to the church in Sardis, there is this hope of life. Life can come. You've got a reputation for being alive, actually you're dead, wake up and you can live. You can live. The true church can rise. How can we love the church? Well, we love Jesus who loves the church. Jesus who is going to cause life to come out of his church. Jesus who is preparing his bride, pure, perfect, spotless. Let's, let's love the church and let's get behind the unfinished business of the church. We look at the world around us, we look at our context. We can just think it's all retreat, all retreat, all retreat. No. There is life. I believe there's life here in Gateway Church. There's life in other churches in this town. There's life in churches across this nation. There's life. There's so much if we can see which, where there's death, but there are so many signs of life as well. And let's believe that Jesus, the one who is in the business of resurrection, can again cause his church to rise, even in our nation, even in our culture, even in our city. Let's Let's... Believe, let's pray for revival. There's a lot of unfinished work to be done. This history in our nation, in our culture of the church. Rose and fall, crumbled in the dust. But life can come. Revival can come. Jesus can cause life to come in his people and out of his people and touch the cities, touch society, touch the worlds with the good news of who he is and what he's done. Church, let's get behind that unfinished business. Amen. Lord, I pray for us. I pray that yeah, we would finish what it is you've called to us called us to. I pray that for each of us personally, the things you've called us to, that we wouldn't leave them unfinished. And I pray it for us corporately. Lord, I pray that you would keep us from the dangers of complacency and sleepwalking. Lord, I pray that there's things we need to hear out of this, warnings for ourselves, for us as a community. You'd... Lord, help us to receive that and to respond. And Lord, thank you for the message of life, that you are able to bring things to life. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you who raised Christ from the dead are at work amongst us. And so I ask now, I pray, Holy Spirit, I pray for your power to be made manifest amongst us again. I pray even now as we come back into worship for a few minutes, there might be a real sense of the presence of God, the power of God at work amongst us, raising us to life again. Lord, I pray for... Any here who are sleepy, who are complacent, who are compromised, I pray, Spirit of God, even now, your power come and cause life to replace what is actually dying. Lord, let us as a people be full of genuine life. Let us, let us be those who, yes, you count as worthy, dressed in white, redeemed, ransomed, held by you, known by you, honoured by name, by you before the Father. Let that be true of us, I pray, King Jesus. Keep us from the sin of Sardis. Keep us in your love. Keep us in your life. Lord, awaken the church in our nation, in our day, I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and let's come and worship him. We have an opportunity now.